0: Hello, hello to my OCD family community, and thank you so much for being here today. If you're joining us for the first time, I am so glad to have you. And for my returning fam, welcome back. I hope this last week has treated you well. And hey, I just wanted to take a quick moment to say if you are finding this content helpful, Please consider subscribing, sharing, or even reviewing the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcast. Your five star reviews help with all the techie algorithms, and the more people that know they're not alone, the better. Besides, subscribing also ensures that you don't miss any dynamic content that we get to digest during our family gatherings. And as far as content goes, today's episode is pretty special. We have a VIP guest in Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz, who is very distinguished and renowned within the OCD research and treatment community. His work, research, and training have profoundly impacted the landscape for our understanding of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And what's even more impressive to me is he's super humble and down-to-earth and really just has a passion for helping OCD sufferers and their loved ones navigate the choppy waters of OCD. Are you excited yet? Join me. I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. As I said, I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz today, and let me just tell you a little bit more about his amazing accomplishments. He is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he specializes in the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder and other problems and disorders related to anxiety. He has over 25 years of experience and is recognized internationally as he is such a strong leader in IOCDF, which is the International OCD Foundation, as well as a leading authority on treatment and the study of these topics. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he conducts research on OCD, other anxiety disorders, as well as training clinical psychology students. He has over 300 scientific articles, books, and book chapters written, and we will be discussing one of those books today and next week called The Family Guide to Getting Over OCD. And as if that is not impressive enough, before moving to North Carolina, he was the director of the OCD Anxiety Disorders Program at the Mayo Clinic. He is the past president of the Association for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies, and he gives workshops and provides training on the treatment of OCD and other related problems. He's devoted his career to the treatment and the study of OCD and other problems related to anxiety, and it is much to our benefit. His contributions to the field of OCD, anxiety disorders, and clinical psychology have been recognized by awards from the National Institute of Mental Health, the American Psychological Association, the International OCD Foundation, and the Mayo Clinic Department of Psychiatry and Psychology. He's a fellow of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, otherwise known as ABCT, and a founding editor for the Journal of Obsessive-Compulsive and Related Disorders. He's a member of the editorial board of several other scientific journals, as well as a member of the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Foundation Clinical and Scientific Advisory Board. I mean, the man is impressive, and he's coming to dish with us about OCD, the family, dating, relationships, and we couldn't be more honored. As I was preparing for our time together today, I realized that the meat of this content is so hearty, to put it in OCD fam terms, that it would be digested best in two separate servings. So today, John and I will be discussing part one, which will focus on the support for families impacted by OCD, and then next week we will discuss part two, which is more focused on the support for couples impacted by OCD. So this is, this is really awesome that you are with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Nicole. It's my pleasure, my honor, and one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I'm, I'm excited.
0: Thank you. I'm excited as well. The first time I ever took a training for OCD was actually a virtual training that you facilitated. And so oh. this was my first exposure to exposure and response prevention. And so I'm, I'm a little bit like fangirling over here <laughs> oh. <laughs> that you're willing to take the time. I love the book. I love that you're willing oh. to come on. And so thank you so much. It's such an honor to have you.
1: Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. I appreciate it.
0: When I created this community, so something that I felt like I really, uh, really kind of paralleled with in your book was that I get a lot of questions from family members, a lot of really super amazing families that I work with that don't want to accommodate, but they're not sure, like their patterns are so ingrained that they don't know how to relate to their family member. And I just felt like there was such a need for resources. I'm in the Midwest right now. I came from the West Coast, but I'm in the Midwest here in the States. And oh my, like there's still a big stigma around mental health here in the Midwest, but also, you know, especially with the pandemic that we all experienced, now finances are a lot tighter, people don't have a lot of money to be able to take people into treatment or they've lost jobs, they've lost insurance. And so if somebody's getting help, it's the OCD sufferer. And if the OCD sufferer is getting help, it's kind of a crapshoot on whether they have a therapist that even understands OCD or not. So getting the the support and resources for family members and spouses and loved ones is really challenging. And so that's part of why I wanted to create this community and I found your specific book, which you have many publications that have been so helpful in this field, but I found this book after I started the OCD Family Podcast, and as I was reading through it, I was like, "Yes, yes, yes!" So this is this <laughs> is going to be such a great resource. On Thank a- you. Yeah.
1: What you're what you're doing is terrific. I mean, Thanks. this is you know really important information to get out and. There's not as much stuff, as you know, directed towards, you know, family members.
0: Right. And they're really in the thick of it. I mean, the therapy is one hour or however long it is per week or twice a week. The family is there all the time. And that is our best ally. So we'll start with how OCD impacts the family system with parents and children, both for younger children raising raising them to become adults, and also when you have adult children and you're like, I'm still raising them, will I ever not be raising them?
1: Sure. So the first thing is for people to understand how OCD works. And then we can talk about, you know, how other members of the family, you know, kind of end up getting involved. OCD is a problem where the person with OCD, they have these fears and anxieties about whether it's external situations, like I touched the floor or went to the bathroom or private events, like I had a certain thought or a certain, you know, feeling of things not being just right. Mm -hmm. And the person with OCD uh, needs to, they feel like they need to fight those experiences. I don't want that anxiety. I don't want that fear. I don't want that uncertainty. And so, you know, to, to them, those experiences are like an urgent matter that requires some sort of action. And so the person does these compulsive rituals, washing, checking. People are probably familiar with those. Mm-hmm. And the point of those rituals is to try to reduce that anxiety, make the feeling of danger go away, try to bring some sort of certainty, uh, you know, back and make the person feel safe. Mm-hmm. The problem is that they end up going to excess and doing this over and over again, and they misperceive danger. They they overestimate danger. And when you do compulsive rituals and there's not really danger there, the person never has a chance to learn that you know, they're actually safe to begin with. So that's the experience of OCD for the person who has the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is that Because the person with OCD is working so hard to try to control their anxiety and make themselves feel safer, they will try to kind of rope in other people to help with these kinds of behaviors, to help to feel safe. And that can show up in different ways. If the person has contamination obsessions, washing rituals, they might ask other people to avoid touching certain things or make them take a shower, wash their hands under certain circumstances. If they do a lot of checking behaviors, they might demand that their family members check the doors and the windows and the stove and stuff like that, mm-hmm. And or, or give them reassurance if they're worried about, you know, what if I lose control and harm someone because I had a thought about doing so? They might ask other people for reassurance. Am I okay? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And when other people get involved and do these rituals, it's, it has the same effect as the person doing them themselves. And so the person without OCD, the family members without OCD, feel like, well, I, you know, I love my family member. I will do whatever it takes to make them feel better. But of course, that only works in the short term. These strategies don't work in the long run. And over time, they find themselves doing more and more of these rituals for the person with OCD. Mm-hmm. And we call that accommodation, mm-hmm. uh, where a family member, out of the goodness of their heart, and we could talk about what happens in the long run, but out of the goodness of their heart, they think they're helping their loved one. But really what they're doing is they're just kind of contributing to the to the vicious cycle. And, right. And that's a big way. And if I could just say one more thing about that, what sometimes happens is it leads to arguments and and the family members become frustrated hey you know I've, i i keep washing my hands and uh but you're still worried about this and it's senseless and we don't need to wash our hands we don't need to check and they start to have arguments about the logic of of the problem mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it's so easy to get caught in those logic conversations. Oh yeah. Because there may be again, especially depending on the age, you may be able to have very rational conversations in other capacities with this person. So, you think they're capable of that? They they can understand what I'm saying, and even for young kids who are super concrete. It's like, well, they understand this in this setting. And I think we probably hear this in the therapist world a lot anyway of like, well, they can do it in this setting. They're capable. And you're like, well, it's, it's not exactly uh, the same thing because in this situation, you're also engaging in the compulsion. So you are reinforcing the learning in the brain saying, hey, this has to happen or else. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and the, per, the family members without OCD, they don't understand that to the person with OCD, this feels like a life and death situation. and You know, even if the people without OCD see it as senseless and maybe objectively it is senseless, to the person with OCD, this is a dire, you know, emergency. Right. And you can't talk someone out of that. That logic, as you were saying, Nicole, that logic just doesn't work.
0: Right. Yeah, it's definitely that fight, flight, or freeze response that you get into. And so if you see a bear and you're like, well, that's a bear, you know, you're not going to be logically like, well, I've watched a documentary on National Geographic about bears and this is what I learned. You're going to have your response. You're going to run. You're going to freeze. You're going to stay. So it is very difficult. And these things can really come on in a subtle way. There are situations where you go 0 to 100 with pans, pandas, where you might have OCD symptomology, feel like it shows up overnight and hijacked the brain of your loved one. But in most cases, this starts in a subtle way. And a lot of people, once they're in treatment and starting to learn about their OCD, they go, you know, this is this is why I'm in treatment here. But I actually can think of when I was six and I did this and. You can see how it traced all the way back, really to, as far as I can remember, being a part of them. And that's something that you mentioned in the book as well, that a lot of times these symptoms start showing up before people turn 25. So you can be anywhere within young childhood to early adulthood and start to have these OCD symptoms start to manifest. Part of the challenge can be, I mean the OCD sufferer doesn't always have insight over what is their OCD or not, but because the family especially in a situation say you're parenting a child who has sensory sensitivities, maybe even sensory processing disorder and they just like things just right, you know, it's not seen as an OCD thing, it's seen as a it's it's classified as a regulation strategy. Sometimes It can be really challenging to pinpoint, well, when did this start and when should I think, like, you know, should I look into this as a possibility of what's going on for my family member?
1: Right. In most cases, OCD starts very gradually and family members don't even realize at first that their loved one has OCD, has a, you know, a a psychological disorder. And that they're playing into it and they don't realize, they don't understand how that works. But, you know, over time, when people get involved in the same patterns over and over again, they, it starts to dawn on them, hey, wait a minute, something's not, something's not right here.
0: Right. And in the book, you discuss the learning process, because people will ask me a lot of times, is this nature or is it nurture? And it's like, well, it's a little bit of both if you think about it. And one of the ways I really appreciated that you presented it in the book is you were talking about um, it having that biological underpinning, but it also has that learning. We've talked here in the OCD family community about inhibitory learning. We've learned, we've talked about stimulus response and operant conditioning. But also there is a piece that is circumstantial factors that can bring things to play. So I think I, I, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, well, you've got to understand this event happened and that really shook me and now I'm having these responses, it seems normal, right? It seems normal that somebody was, somebody was abducted at Target and I saw that on Facebook, you know, it was, it was circulated. I could get abducted. Things like that. And so it can be kind of tricky. But if you would be able to talk a little bit more about those three different areas, the biological, the learning and the circumstantial pieces coming together and how they affect the OCD sufferer and the family system.
1: Yeah. And we really just don't know the causes of OCD. It's multifactorial. In other words, it's not just one thing mm-hmm. that leads to to OCD. It's an unfortunate combination of different factors, probably some biological factors that we don't really know. We don't have a lot of good evidence as to what those might be. But at some level, you know, biology is involved and certainly experiences. We know that OCD affects people where they are, where they're most vulnerable, the things that they value most, that they care about most. That's usually where OCD attacks. So our, our culture, our environment, our learning history, you know, certainly plays into that. And then, you know, a person can have OCD, but you wouldn't know it until something happens uh, where it kind of, you know, triggers them uh, and makes them have intrusive unwanted thoughts or anxiety over a specific situation. And then that starts the whole episode. And I think it's important for family members to not try to figure out what's the cause, because ultimately that doesn't matter. We have good treatments the best form of treatment is exposure and response prevention. And that works regardless of what the cause of OCD is. Mm-hmm. And we never want to blame ourselves as family members. You would never want to say, if I had only done X, Y, and Z as a parent, then such and such you know, wouldn't have happened. Then the OCD wouldn't have happened. That is absolutely not true and only leads to bad feelings. So the OCD is not caused by bad parenting. OCD is not caused by some gene that, you know, a parent gave to a kid and, and you know, and, and that led to OCD. It just, that's a, very much an oversimplification of how this works. We just don't understand it. Um, so I recommend for families to kind of stay away from worrying about the cause. And instead, let's work on what we can do to stop the, the problem now.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I think parents in particular can get caught in that cycle because they would do, you know, most, most every parent would do anything for their child. And they think, was, was I partly responsible for this? You see that not just in OCD, you see it in other situations too, or with autism, that's definitely, a, a, you know, a big area where people are going, was this my fault? And really, it's a neurodiversity. So its is it anybody's fault that we have a brain and our brain functions differently? And we don't always fit into a little box that says, yes, here we are. We're our standard average self. And so I think that's a really good point of being able to zoom out and go, it's not about, did I give this to my child? And that's so hard to not blame ourselves when we're parents, of, of course. But I really like in the book, you postured it in a different way. And you just said, what can I do to support? Take that same oomph and pour it into the, well, it's there. So what can we do about it? Right?
1: That's exactly right. We can't rewrite history, can't go back and change that. So what do we do now? That's right.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the main pieces to doing exposure and response prevention and to doing treatment here is so that you can live for your values and you don't have to get stuck in all these different questions. You can say, what do I want to do today? I want to go to Timmy's soccer game and maybe not have to make dinner. But if I do, maybe somebody else will do the dishes. That's what I want to do today. I don't want to be bogged down by all of these obsessions or compulsions. I don't want to be bogged down to, am I accommodating too much? Or I don't even know how to talk. Did I reassure? Did I just tell them something? And so it can be really tricky but it's important not only for the OCD sufferer but i think for the family member to zoom out and go what are the values what do we want we want to just be able to do family things not only for our loved one but for us cuz we don't need to get so consumed in timmy's OCD here that we lose sight of ourselves and just live the life that you know we only have one chance to live
1: true yeah
0: so as we kind of look into that you were introducing the idea of accommodation and i think accommodation is tricky because sometimes, first of all, some some obsessions and compulsions are easier to identify, specifically if they're, you know, observable, something like contamination where you go, okay, I get it. They're going through three bottles of soap. And so I can buy one bottle of soap or I can take that out and we're just going to be water people. But it, 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 There are some more difficult, tricky ones, and and not to say that those outward ones can't be doozies, but also I think a lot of times families get caught up in mental rituals because it's hard to know, are you being OCD? And the OCD sufferer will get pretty uh, frustrated at everything being labeled as OCD when they're just trying to have a conversation. So could you talk a little bit more about just the process of identifying what an accommodation would be in terms of both those physical manifestations and those mental rituals that can be a little trickier to identify?
1: Sure. I think that a good definition of accommodation would be if a person asks themselves, would I do this for a loved one if they didn't have OCD? Mm. And if the answer is no, then it's accommodation. Then you're you're helping with some sort of avoidance behavior or some sort of ritual, giving reassurance, providing the resources for people to do rituals, giving, you know, paying money for extra. So, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, um, providing, you know. Rides to and from places where the person I worked with someone once who had to go and do confession, they were Catholic, and the parents would drive them back and forth to confession, sometimes multiple times, like in a week. And mm-hmm. my understanding is there, there is a time frame for confession, and you don't have to go, met, you know, multiple times per week, according to you know, some Catholics anyway. And so, you know, again, the parents were kind of accommodating that the, mm-hmm. the young adult. I need to do confession. The parents are like, okay, we don't want you to feel anxious, so we'll we'll drive you there. Mm -hmm. So there's so many, you know, countless ways that a family member can accommodate OCD symptoms. But if you're doing something or allowing something to happen, putting up with something that you wouldn't put up with if the person didn't have OCD, then that's accommodation.
0: I think that's a really nice kind of clean, simplistic way to c- kind of derive your answer. And I always tell people, if you're not sure, like err on the side of if it is, whatever. When you know, right. lean into it. It's not going to hurt right. you. But if right. it goes unchecked, that can cause a lot more damage. But yeah, you know, I think that's a really good point. Would I do this for somebody, whether it's somebody else in your direct family system or like, you know, just family in general? Like, would I do that for my nephew? No, I wouldn't. And so using that as a kind of quick little tool to be able to guide you on what accommodation is or isn't. Okay, so you get to the point where you recognize, oh, maybe I'm accommodating. In the book, you provide four different vignette examples of how this can break down and look, which I think is very helpful because people, when they have an example to kind of relate it to, it's it's just easier to digest. And coming into the OCD world, there's so much to digest. So it's, it's helpful for families. But would you recommend starting with going, okay, I'm going to do kind of a log of a day and kind of just look at what maybe am I accommodating or not? Just using that kind of quick and fast rule, would I do this for anybody else in the family, regardless of OCD? Would that be a good way to start kind of looking at where maybe accommodation is creeping up? Because people often think of certain things like, yeah, I did that. But there's a lot of things that can cluster throughout a day that they didn't realize. We're accommodating yeah. behaviors,
1: yeah, that is a good start. And in the book, I provide some forms that people can you know make copies of. I think you can even download it from the website of the publisher, Guilford Press, and use those forms to keep track of, you know when you're accommodating. so that's that's an excellent first step. At the same time, you want to be educating yourself about the experience of what your loved one is going through with OCD and learning that they are stronger than you think. They are more, they are hardier than you think. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is not dangerous. Intrusive thoughts are not dangerous. And uncertainty is ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And your loved one with OCD is not like a candle that's going to just blow out with a gust of wind. Mm -hmm. They are stronger. They are more resilient. Mm -hmm. And so learning about that, because when you ultimately work to start Reducing accommodation, you're going to be supporting your loved one by helping them find out that they are not like a candle, a fragile flame that's going to go out with a gust of wind, but that they can manage their distress better than you or they thought that they could.
0: Yeah. And if you think about people that, you know, sometimes if we think about it in the adult children scenario, I mean, it could be a 60 year old adult. It could be yeah. some people go most of their life. With it never diagnosed, or if they get a diagnosed, it can be certainly later in their years. And they have dealt with the intensity of OCD for as long as they can remember. They are a tough cookie. They are a tough, tough cookie, and they are capable. But I really like that point because it is important for the sufferer, but also for the family, to realize not only is the sufferer stronger than they thought, you're 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 strong too. I mean, you guys yes. have all been going through this, and you can. You're gonna be able to handle it. I think it's hard to hold the distress of seeing loved ones who will be very verbal about you're torturing me and you're right. out to get me. You hate me. I'm you know I want to die. This isn't worth. It's like oh you know as a parent you go ooh well you know I don't want to torture my child. This is cruel. I can't be cruel to them. But the point you're making is you're not being cruel in fact you're being pretty loving to be able to go hey this is the event the situation you think is happening is exactly that what you think is happening the actual event and and you put it very well in the book the way we think about the events versus the actual events or situations themselves is what's causing that panic to rise but even with panic, I will tell clients, well, they'll come in and say, you know, I'll say, how did the homework go this week? They'll go, well, it, it went really badly. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. And they're like, yeah. I mean, they, they started to panic. And I was like, okay. And
1: yeah, right, exactly. That's, I, I find myself doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, sure. Of course you got anxious. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you got through it. And you, right. And you didn't die.
0: Right. And yeah. the thing is, that we're afraid of that panic. And, we're afraid of that feeling, and for the o c d sufferer, it goes from zero to one hundred so much quicker because this is life or death, it's what it feels like for them as you were as you were pointing out, and then the family gets on board with that like it is life or death, I gotta help, I gotta help this person, and so really being able to calibrate or recalibrate really. That this is a thought and normalizing and working as a family member on being able to hear like, yeah, okay, those were your thoughts, because these thoughts can be very scary. They can be dark. This is why the person is having a scary response. And yet they're just a thought. It's different than what's actually happening. And so being able to normalize, yes, you're having this thought, but there is a difference between what you think and what you're doing. And being able to highlight that, which you highlight in the book as well, is such an important point. I think for bridging to your OCD loved one and saying, "Hey, that's that's a thought," not in a patronizing way at all. That's, but it's, but it is a
1: thought. Many parents feel that their duty is to protect their kids Mm -hmm. from anxiety, adversity, stress. Intrusive thoughts, you know, things like that. And in the short term, that feels good, Mm -hmm. right? So little Timmy doesn't get, you know, doesn't get upset and everybody's happy and that's wonderful. Unfortunately, that backfires in the long run because little Timmy never learns how to manage distress. And inevitably, at some point, you know, little Timmy is going to run into a situation, you know, where, where they experience distress. Now, if you have OCD or if you have a a child with OCD, right, that's just kind of multiplied because there's so much distress and Mm -hmm. parents get kind of roped in their whole, you know, life becomes about protecting their kid, you know, from, from distress, Mm -hmm. but that they do them a a disservice. And what, what I talk about in the book is we want to teach parents how to how to help their loved ones learn with OCD, learn that they are strong and that they can manage OCD symptoms on their own. And Mm -hmm. that is the most loving thing that you can do for a a child is to teach them independence, to teach them resilience. That's something that looks difficult in the short run because you have to push your child, you know, to face their fears, to be in a situation that feels uncomfortable in the moment. But over time, that's the only way that that person learns, you know what, I can do this. And even though it's, it's unpleasant, like you were saying, anxiety provoking, whatever, that's not harmful. It's distressing. And being distressed is just a part of life. I'm better off learning how to be better at distress rather than How do I avoid any sort of distress? Because ultimately, that's just not avoidable.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a reframe I often provide to people at the beginning of treatment and intermittently throughout because it can't be said enough. But it's really something that I think is an advantage that my OCD sufferers and families can benefit from in the long run. Because who doesn't say in a scenario of like, oh, gosh, even if it's a bad answer, if I just know the answer, I'll feel better about this well, life is like so, you know, topsy-turvy and it's so polarized and there's always something happening. And if you can get to the point where you're like, yeah, it's distressing and I don't know what will happen. Okay. I can deal with that. I'm going to go about my day. That's pretty, that's pretty powerful. And that's something that the average person really struggles with. And so it's something that is, Attainable not only within your own intrusive thoughts, but just managing the culture, managing what happens in society and being able to go, Well, I can roll with it. I don't have to like it. And I don't have to know what the result will be. I can sit with that. That's pretty powerful.
1: I can sit with that and I can act with that. Yes. Yeah. I I don't have to sit. A lot of people I hear. In, in mainly folks I work with in therapy, they say, you know, I have to sit with the anxiety. Like, no, you don't. You need to act. You need to operate with the anxiety. And this isn't about sitting with anything. This is about moving on with your life with anxiety, because everybody has anxiety sometimes. And you're going to learn how to be better at that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as a family, you come out pretty strong, too. You know, when you're able to get through these, it's, it's not an easy process. But living with OCD and just the, I love the analogy you use of it being a scam artist. You use that in the book. Constant scamming. If you were the constant victim of a scam artist, that is so much harder. That is so much harder. And so the therapy is hard. No joke. But at the same time, living with OCD is so much harder. And so There is a lot of hope, and I love that there is so much hope available. I don't know if you find this, but I feel like in my work with OCD clients, I really enjoy pediatric cases because I usually get access to the family or some major players in the family in session as well. And kids, when it clicks, it clicks. And it's just amazing to see kids really respond to their very reward-driven, but the best reward is when they realize they don't have to be burdened by those constant intrusive thoughts. And that, that helps them to accelerate through the process sometimes. It's hard when you look at some, when you, you know, some parents out there are going, okay, well, my son is 44 and I pay for his apartment and I have to have a caretaker come in and help. And I don't know if he'll ever be able to function without me, like we have to set up a trust for, you know, if and when we we pass because of this. What would you say to the parent in that situation? Because obviously there can there's a lot of information and a lot of scenarios that can happen. But I think when you're getting to older adults that are still living in, and perhaps even pretty debilitated and living with you because of how intense their OCD has become, what would you say to them in terms of, hope for treatment and really getting involved, because sometimes, too, at this point, the adults are like, screw life, screw everything. This therapy isn't going to work. I'm not I'm not even I don't I'm not going to engage. What would you say to them?
1: So to the the parents of the older adult? Or to the, the parents adult
0: to adult? The parent of the older adult going, I don't even know, like, yes, I'm accommodating, I guess, by having a caretaker, but I just don't see that the, they're going to be able to function ever otherwise.
1: Yeah. Well, it's never too late to learn how to function. Mm-hmm. It's never it's never too late to get past a problem like OCD and to learn that, that you can manage. And I think that You know, once you have raised your kids and, you know, hopefully launched them, Mm -hmm. you as parents, you deserve some time for yourself. And that doesn't mean be completely selfish and just, you know, cast off the person with OCD would never do that, of course. But I think it's important for those people as parents to be able to take some time for themselves, travel do in, enjoyable things uh, we don't have forever in, on this planet. And it's unfortunate that your loved one, your you know, son or daughter has OCD and maybe has not been able, for whatever reason, has not been able to get the help that they need. But that doesn't mean that the parents need to suffer as well. Mm-hmm. Life is short. And, you know, it's perfectly okay for those parents to take Some time out and to be able to do things for themselves that will make them better caretakers, you know, for their their adult loved ones. I think
0: I think that's a really great point. And I think often, whether at a young age or an older age, parents can start to feel guilty if they're enjoying their life because, yes, Timmy. Adult Timmy now. Poor Timmy. He <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's uh, really struggling. And I can I really go explore Europe? Can I go take this vacation that we wanted to do after we retired? I don't think we can because Timmy's going to need help and Timmy's gonna, not going to be able to make it. And the yeah. point that you're making is great. You still have to live to your values. You still have to say, if that, if your value was, I want to work hard so that I can do this when we retire, then do it. It doesn't mean you don't love Timmy. There can that be is love- one of the
1: biggest, yeah, that's one of the biggest obstacles that that I run into when I work with families is the guilt that you're talking about. Is yeah. that uh, parents often feel, whether it's a, a younger child or an, an adult child, yeah. how can I... Dare to have fun and enjoy my life when such and such is is suffering, and I get it. That uh, you know, I, I I certainly hear that, and and I say two things, and and the first is that you know you can't help your loved one if you're not taking care of yourself, and that's why I forget if at one point this was going to be in the book, and I think my editor was like. Well, you know what? That's kind of cliche. Don't put that in the book. I can't remember if it made it in or not, but mm-hmm. that's why when you're on an airplane, they mm-hmm. say, you know, um, it, when those, it, or if, hopefully if, right. <laughs> oxygen masks come down, put your own right. oxygen mask on before you, you know, help someone else, your, your child or something. And point well taken, right? We need to help ourselves. We need to be in good shape before we can help other people. So I think that's important. And then the second thing I say is that, you know, you don't have OCD and it sucks that your relative does. And in many cases, these are parents who have worked really hard to try to get their loved one into treatment. The person has refused for one reason or another. and the But parents can't control their particularly adult children. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, at some point you have to say, well, if they're not going to help themselves, we can't be completely responsible for that. We need to enjoy our life too. And you have every right as a parent to do that, to take breaks. Right. We, we, we all need, we all need, we love our family members and we sometimes need breaks from them. And that's perfectly natural and perfectly healthy.
0: Yeah. Having some respite makes you able to love them a little better because you've taken time to recharge yourself. And that's something about creating this community that felt really important. If you look at, like, addiction models and you look at some uh, programs like Al-Anon or support groups, and there's a ton of support groups, uh, you know, for different addiction models, you see how important it is. A, for you to have that boundary and go, this is where they end and I begin, this is where I end and they begin. And then also realizing how we can play into that, how we need to take breaks from that. And I, I think that's a, a challenge that comes up too, you know, when someone is, has a loved one with meth addiction or something of that effect. Like, if I go, what if they hurt themselves? We don't want them to hurt themselves, but we can't make that choice for them. I think that's just the perpetual problem of parenthood anyway. Like the moment your child's born, you're like, I can't make all their choices for them. If you would, they would just pee on the potty right away. They would do all sorts of things right away, you know. But it doesn't work like that. And as they get to be adults and just even older children, there are certain things that they have to choose. You're not going to be able to choose for them as hard as that is. And you can be scared and worried, but also you can go, okay, you know, when does your fear and worry sometimes go into obsessional thought as well and get impacted by the intensity of your loved one's OCD? So it can be it can be a real struggle, but I think it is so, so important. And I use that analogy all the time, too, with the oxygen masks, because it's true. Mm You, you're not much help to someone else if you passed out because you're not getting oxygen. you got to be able to sustain your life. you got to live to your values. you got to model that and do it so that you have the energy to then be there for your loved one. Right. Yeah. That's a really, really important point. You know, another kind of flip side of the coin with this is sometimes you have people growing up in families where their parents are the ones struggling with OCD. And maybe they, you know, maybe the parent is the authority, and so they have the accommodation baked in, having their children kind of play into the accommodation schedule. And sometimes it's hard for those kids to be able to assert something other than what the parent's rule of the house is. But when they get out of the house, they can kind of process that, (laughs) sort through all the very big feelings that can bubble up with that. But what would you say for, you know, kids out there... Whether maybe maybe kind of older young adult, children, or you know even older children with parents maybe in a very elderly age, going yeah they have OCD and I still don't know what to do like they're they're eighty four they going to be able to learn something new I don't think so if I don't do this they they're gonna suffer,
1: yeah and I think that's a very difficult situation to be in and we know that people do end up in those kinds of situations. And that's again, where, you know, if you are in a situation like that, self-care, like we were talking about before, is just so important. Absolutely. You're going to, you know, you love your parents. You don't agree with, you know, their OCD symptoms and all that. But at some point, you know, maybe you kind of make that decision that you are going to be in some sort of caretaker role, whether you're doing it you know, full-time or part-time or paying someone else to do it. But it's so important at the same time for self-care and take breaks and take that vacation and know that it is perfectly okay and responsible of you mm-hmm. to take that break and and reset and refresh so that you can get back in and feel renewed and not burnt out of yeah. taking care of, of loved ones. Your parents don't deserve you know, caretakers who are, who are burnt out.
0: That's a really good point. And so and I think in OCD, there's such an inflated sense of responsibility, both for the sufferer who's like, I must save all the world by the compulsions that just, you know, never are satisfied. But also as a parent, there's this responsibility like they should be able to solve this. Right. Or for the adult child with an elder dependent adult parent with OCD going, oh, they've been in and out of the hospital. They're really struggling. Like, I should be able to help solve this for them. But it's, you know, what is there to solve? They have to be able to be willing to work on some of it. And depending on where they're at, you know, is where they're at. It's the same for all of us. And so really protecting that you are your own individual person, too, that has to take care of your needs and your needs are important is very important.
1: And and there are people that will end up in situations where their life to one extent or another, at least temporarily, will be dedicated to helping a loved one, whether it's a parent or or a child. And but that doesn't mean that that has to completely take over your life. You can still do fun things and enjoy your life and, and go out and take, take breaks from your loved one who, you know, who has OCD, again, so that you can still live a fulfilled life, even though you have this part of your life that you wish was, was different. Again, whether it's you're caring for a, a child or, or a, a parent. Who has the problem. Or another family member.
0: Right, right. I think that's a really good point. I mean, if you think about, you know, how many people can relate to, you know, perhaps having a loved one in some kind of assisted living situation, <laughs> irregardless of OCD, right? Uh, you know, or needing nursing care because of their medical needs being comprehensive, whatever the situation yeah. is. Would you say, I could not go on vacation? I can't take the cruise. I can't take a break. Because they're in assisted living. Okay, they're in assisted living. Well, good thing they have assistance when they need it and can also be somewhat independent, as can you. But I think these roles of being the caretaker evolve in looking such a specific way because OCD likes to be very bossy and very specific. And so sometimes it's hard to separate, like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I probably wouldn't do that. The situation just kind of seems foreign. But I like that same hard and fast rule of going, well, if they didn't have OCD and they just needed assisted living, would I say, okay? so I'm going to go explore the canals in Venice? Yeah, I probably would. So go explore them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So one of the things you break down in the book, too, that I think is very helpful, you talk about kind of two different scenarios. You have the OCD sufferer wants to get better. You have the OCD sufferer is very resistant to treatment. And you we're going to have families that have (laughs) a lot of experience with both of those and maybe the same person, you know, okay, no, I'm all in. No, wait, no, no, done, done. It's not working for me. I'm afraid it's a failure. I'm going to push it away before it fails me kind of thing so if we could can we talk a little bit about in the first case scenario we'll say the motivated sufferer that wants to is hopeful to improve the family by zen can you speak a little bit to the course of what treatment looks like and what expectations of recovery can look like for that OCD sufferer and the family system as
1: well yeah sure So, the the gold standard treatment, in other words, the one that's been researched the most, the one that we know works the the best, but I I won't say that it works for everybody because it certainly doesn't. As you know, it's called exposure and response prevention. It is a form of CBT or cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And what we do in exposure and response prevention is that we challenge folks with OCD to lean into their fears, to face down the situations the unwanted thoughts, the anxiety, the uncertainty Mm -hmm. that they typically try to avoid or push away. We want to help them to lean into that so that they can learn that those situations are not as dangerous as they thought. And in most cases, they're not dangerous at all. Right. Um, At the same time, they need to give up their compulsive rituals so that they can also learn, I don't need to do compulsive rituals in order to be safe. And Mm -hmm this is a tends to be a short term and by short term i mean usually 4 months or so weekly you know well i guess sometimes it's more than weekly sometimes it's less than weekly but usually we say that the research protocols are about 16 sessions mm-hmm. right and practicing this exposure and response prevention with a therapist you know on your own or with family support stuff like that mm-hmm and the outcomes are generally good. What we know in the literature is that somewhere between 50 and 75% of folks have a positive response. And in most cases, that is a long-lasting response. But what that means is that maybe, uh, you know, uh, a, a third of folks don't respond. And there can be different reasons for that. Sometimes it's because, you know, th- it's such a frightening experience. This is a challenging experience for the person with OCD. And some folks are just not at a place where they're ready to do this kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for other folks, they're not getting, they, they don't get hooked up with a therapist that really knows how to implement the therapy the, the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of the, that's how therapy works and overall kind of what the procedures are. Now, for people who are family members of folks with OCD, we want them helping out in healthy ways. So again, instead of accommodation, instead of providing reassurance, oh, you can touch the toilet. I touch that all the time and you're going to be just fine, right? We don't want that. Mm-hmm. We, we want them to challenge their loved one and say, you know, This is going to help you out. I know this is difficult, and I know how strong you are, Mm -hmm. and that you can do this. And yeah, you're going to feel uncomfortable, and you can get through it. Mm -hmm. Well, am I going to get sick if I touch it? You know, I can't really give you that answer. We're working on living with uncertainty. We're working on living with anxiety and acting with anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that's for you to find out. And you can do it, you can get through it, and so we want family members to push their relatives with OCD in a in a, a a nice, you know, obviously respectful way. We're doing this because we love you. We know you can do it. Give them lots of praise and positive reinforcement for doing the hard work. Mm-hmm. not be pessimistic, not be you know kind of hanging on the person's back. Did you do the, the homework yet? Did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? not having arguments, not giving reassurance. And in a great many cases, certainly not all, but in a great many cases, family members rise to the occasion. We have a a treatment protocol where we teach relatives, spouses, partners, parents, children, how to communicate, how to be good therapy coaches.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And again, it's often different from what they've done before. It's an adjustment. You mean I got to, Make them do the thing that makes them anxious. How can I do that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we 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 train them. And and in the majority of cases, at least in my experience, that's really helpful. I realize that that's not everybody, and that's just my own experience as a therapist, and that's not representative of every therapist. But it right. certainly is the case where that can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, certainly, and it's you know. I think you provided a lot of really practical tools of how to be assertive with your loved one and examples of what that can look like in different scenarios because we know how sneaky OCD is and OCD loves to kind of change the rules. But, you know, you put this in the book as well of, you know, we're we're trying to OCD likes to make the rules, but we're trying to change the way the game is played. Right. You know, we're we're saying, okay we don't have to play by these rules. And what happens? We'll see. Let's roll the dice and say, you know, get, could you get sick? I guess you could. Yeah. It doesn't do us any good. Parents can be so quick to reassure and go, oh, no, that'll never happen. You wait till so that one time the kid does get sick and he happened to do like a touch the to- little Timmy touching the toilet. He's going to know Is he going to say, see, I got sick. But the reality is, like, so what if you get sick? And a lot of times that can lead into some bigger concerns in OCD of what if I die and what happens when I die and all these different things. But at the same time, I think those assertiveness tools are really, really helpful the way you break them down. And you give multiple examples of how family members can flip the script, literally put the responsibility back to the person, have them really hold that. And it's hard. It's hard to not just solve things for the people that we love when we know this could solve it. Right.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah.
0: In a way, it's not that different than being, you know, at Target and going, oh, the kid's going to cry and scream if I don't give them this candy, you know, that they want. And it's like, well, sometimes sometimes we don't want the scene. So we give them the candy and it's like, well, but this is how the brain is also learning. This is why I need you to accommodate in this way or we won't survive. And so it is a pretty big shift. The program that you were talking about in, in training parents is are you talking about like space or is there another program that you're, you're referencing about well, training?
1: Yeah, space is a terrific program that it tends to be more for younger, younger kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The work that I do tends to be more with adult children mm-hmm. and their parents and also with partner, you know, spouses and partners, couples. Yeah. With OCD. And back to what you were saying before, there's definitely a different dynamic between partners, you know, spouses and romantic partners than there is between parents and kids. There's a power dynamic between parents and kids that, of course, you don't have between spouses. Spouses are supposed to be, you know, equals and they have, you know, an an intimate relationship that's a lot different. Than between parents and kids. And so that communication needs to be different in many respects. Not all respects, but in many respects.
0: Thank you for thoughts. As we roll into our intrusive thought segment, I just wanted to take another opportunity to thank Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz for the incredible dialogue we've had about OCD and how it impacts the family system. We covered so much ground today, and to think we have the privilege of doing it all again next week as we discuss part two of this series, The Impact of OCD on Couples. I can't wait to share more of our discussion with you, but I also want to take a moment to highlight John's book, The Family Guide to Getting Over OCD. You heard me reference it quite a bit, and it's such an invaluable resource, particularly for this community. I'm going to put some links to John's website and Amazon where you can buy or download this book on Kindle for this episode's podcast on OCDFamilyPodcast.com. But also feel free to search for this book under all distributors. The content is so practical and thoughtfully laid out, and the examples and recommended skills are so applicable and helpful. Also, John has an expansive range of books available, including workbooks, self help books. Clinicians' guides, and more. So take a look, and I wouldn't be surprised if you found a myriad of literature that can support you or your loved one along the way. Now for our intrusive thoughts application of the week. And if you're new to our OCD family community, this segment is the portion of the show where I aim to provide a practical application of how this discussion can apply in your life, even here, even now. And I thought I would boomerang back to the tip that John discussed with us earlier on the topic of accommodation. If you're the loved one or chosen family of an OCD sufferer, ask yourself, if the OCD sufferer didn't have OCD, if that was just out of the equation, would I do this for them? If the answer is yes, then proceed. Pasco, collect $200. Live your life. And if the answer is no, then don't do it. Because in life, this is as close as we got to getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. Compulsions imprison the OCD sufferer. And very quickly, you can get stuck there too. So if you're stuck, no judgment. You came by it honestly. You were just trying to help. This is simply an opportunity to learn that the best thing you can do to help is to not reinforce the brain's learning. Compulsions keep our loved ones stuck, and we don't have to play a part in OCD scam. Lastly, it bears repeating. Take some time this week to plan some intentional self-care for yourself. Whether you're a parent, child, partner, or spouse, you matter. Ask yourself, when's the last time we had a date night away from our loved one with OCD? If you're single parenting or co parenting on a particular schedule, get a sitter, even if it's just to go to the grocery store in peace. But also, maybe dream bigger. Go get your nails done. Roam the hardware store and dream up a new project. Live your life. Embrace your values. Fill your bucket. You're worth it. And hey, they are worth it. So let's get to living for our worth. Until next time, fam. Hope to see you then. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like helping your loved ones. That's right, I went there. And you can too, at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.